it's been mentioned already in the season of Lent. And a lot of times when we think about Lent, we think about taking things off, like I'm going to put this away now. I'm, I'm not going to practice this thing or I'm going to give up drinking or certain foods or whatever it may be. And uh, in a lot of ways, Lent in an American version has turned to do a good way just to go on a diet, you know, like to, to be kind of, kind of blunt with it. But Lent is really as much about taking things on than putting things off because Lent is about learning these new sacred ways that we can interact with God. And when we were thinking about this, this season of Lent and how we wanted to approach it, we realized it'd be a great way to introduce something that's already been in the water upstream with Christ City for a while now, but maybe you just heard, it, heard us mention it. If you've been to partner classes, you've heard us talk about that as well. All that to say, it's something that we call the eight practices. Um, the eight practices are something that we started thinking through beginning of last year as a staff and as leadership. And, and a lot of you get this if you've been at Christ City longer than a minute. You, you know that we're trying to do something here in that we're trying to create a container for people from all kinds of sides and shades theologically can come together and worship God and learn how to talk to one another, that we don't have identity politics, we don't have identity theology, we don't even try to take on these identity backgrounds of how we're supposed to relate to God, in that my side is right. You can have your side, that's fine, but to see another side and respect it, and that can be really scary to do that. Because you're thinking, but yeah, but this person, like they're obviously off or a sinner or they're not like me. And then that makes you have to question your own humility in the first place. Like, do we truly hold for one person or one view all the truths of Christianity? And so what we're trying to do is create a container. Now with that though, I don't know if you noticed this, we added the Apostles' Creed. And after the sermon, we're gonna go to the table. You know, it's really important that we are rooted as a church, we're rooted in, in what we buy into. And I've had a lot of people comment to me, um, I don't like, they don't say it this bluntly, they say it this bluntly. Like, I don't like your preaching because you leave me with more questions than give me answers. And I have to tell them in turn, like, I'm not a sitcom. Like, this isn't a 30 minute arc where we're gonna give you a nice little storyline and a couple of laughs and everything's resolved. That's not how it's gonna work. And obviously, that someone doesn't like it when I say that. So, anyway, like, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're actually trying to leave you with more tension because the Bible's big. But we still need to have anchors, and those anchors are what we believe, the Apostles' Creed. The anchors are what we experience in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which then creates a space in between to allow us to wrestle with things. Now, we also need more, though, don't we? Like, we, we need more ways to connect to one another so that we don't just stay on our sides of the room. And these eight practices, we feel like, give us a shot at that. How many of you are either involved in a club or some kind of group that is not religious? Raise your hand, right? Like several of you. you it could be a sewing club. It could be a running group. Uh, things like CrossFit, right, or Iron Tribe. There's all kind of groups like that where you all have, like, met each other and, and, and made community. And you probably didn't say to one another, hey, tell me your soteriological views of the Bible before we're going to interact with one another. Like, if you did, then you didn't make a friend. You know that, right? Like, if that's what you said to a person. So, like, we don't approach it in that way. And yet, here's what's interesting. You find that those people you're meeting, 
you're creating bonds with them. Why? Because you're practicing something together. You're in motion towards something together. And so as we are in this space of giving people different, like letting people have their sides and their views, we still need to practice things along the way that help kind of bind us together. And that's what we feel like these eight practices, these eight rhythms give us a shot at. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about these eight practices that Christ City believes are important that becomes the stickiness for us to have more relationship with one another. And each week, we're going to break it down. And to help you with it, um, we are giving you an insert in your bulletin every week, and you can pull that out and look at it for a second, and I'll explain it to you. Every week, we're going to have the practice for that Sunday we'll be talking about. So this Sunday, we're talking about choose presence. And then there's even like a little definition of what choosing presence looks like. And then underneath that, we actually give you a passage to meditate on, to think about. So the idea is that you can take this home with you, put it in your Bible, your book, or by your bedside, doesn't really matter. And you can use this to become more familiar with what choosing presence looks like. And then on the back of this insert, we've invited people in our church that are really living these rhythms out to give us advice on ways that they have practiced these things in their lives. So on the back, you'll notice, like, there's a couple of little practices you could do to practice this practice, like being present and accounted for, and it kind of walks you through a process, or having a pondering heart. And then we're trying to also put either a prayer, a meditation, or even a poem that different people in our church have written or thought about. So the idea is that you could take this home, and this could be a way for you to become more interactive with these practices. So we're asking you to consider doing that, to take something on for this Lenten season, and to see how this might not just deepen your own personal faith, but also like give you something to talk about with someone across the room. Because now you're practicing very similar things. Get it? So that said, this morning, I want us to look at a passage here in Matthew. I want us to talk about this idea of choosing presence. Now, this definition that we put here is to be present is to see, and to see lends us to have compassion so great we must act on it. We desire to be a fully present people with ourselves so that we can be present with others. And then you go, well, what the heck does that mean? Like, how do I even start doing that? So let's look at this. Matthew, the story of Jesus, these series of stories of Jesus, I think help us dig into that. Let's start with verse 18. It says that while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. While he was saying this. The synagogue leader, now by the way, we have this story in three different gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all give a different kind of angle to the story, so we're going to be using all three this morning, and so you can keep up on the screen, because I'll be using different passages, I don't want you to get lost. We know from Mark and Luke, this synagogue leader's name is Jairus, okay? Um, and Jairus is coming to Jesus because his daughter has died. Now, it says, he goes, my daughter has just died. And it's really interesting, catch this, while Jesus was saying this, which means Jesus was in the middle of something when Jairus came to him. This is really interesting throughout even Matthew chapter 9. 
Jesus is constantly being interrupted with something. Like it starts off with him talking to one person and then somebody interrupts him. And then this person, somebody interrupts him. As he was going, while he was saying, it's very intentional language that Matthew is using. So while he is saying this, he gets interrupted by Jairus. And it says that my daughter has died. And if you'll just come to her, it says, he says here, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And then it says Jesus got up and so did his disciples and went with him. Mark tells us, my little daughter, pretty affectionate. Luke tells us his 12-year-old daughter. Now, I want you to think about this. Think of the, sometimes we read things like this and it's two-dimensional. Jairus is, like, think how hysterical he is. Think of the tears he has. Think of the fear he has and is living with in this moment. This isn't a calm interruption. This is a, my daughter is dying. Listen, see me, see me, see me, listen. I mean, Jesus is going through these crowds here. And so Jesus lets himself be interrupted and then goes with Jairus to his daughter. And it's really important to understand this, that Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted. And how hard that is to even maybe allow ourselves to be interrupted. We got a lot of things going on in life, don't we? A lot of plates spinning. A lot of things are important. A lot of agendas, a lot of calendaring and events we have to mark off. And it gets hard sometimes with ourselves being interrupted. But we see that the Jesus rhythm here is that he keeps letting himself be interrupted. So he's, he's interrupted. He's in the middle of something. Matter of fact, here's what he's in the middle of. The, the passage before that says he's being questioned like by how much he and his disciples are partying. partying. And then the passage before that, he's being interrupted and being questioned that he like is letting sinners and tax collectors come eat with him. So like he's being questioned. It's not like he's having a good gentle like, hey, how's your day? What do you think about the weather? You know, it's like we're against you. You're getting it wrong. And I know this, I know whenever people come against me, like I'm ready to go. Like, I'm, I'm, let's do this. You, 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 you tapped on the wrong shoulder, bro. Let's do this right now. And Jesus, though, doesn't. He allows himself to like go, oh, there's something else bigger here. I'm gonna go do this now. And so he goes with Jairus. Now look at verse 20. Just then, just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. There's a lot of longing in just those three words, if I only. Like, if, if, if only, I got to go interrupt him, but I can't interrupt him. Like, we actually know, and we'll see this later on from, from other passages, that there were so many people in this crowd, they were, like, being pressed against, right? I mean, it was like, like Justin Bieber trying to be led through a sea of teenage girls or something like that. Like, I got to get through this place, right? Or, or maybe adult people as well. I don't know. So anyway, like, he's got to get through this place. And this, this woman inserts herself because just then, just then, she needs a moment. And we see in 
in Mark 5 because this is bad. It says she's now been subject to this suffering for 12 years. It says in, in Mark chapter 5, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Listen, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So let's think about this woman. First off, she's a woman. And in the patriarchal world, she has very little rights. Okay? Two, she's bleeding, and they can't figure out how to stop it for 12 years. We don't really know what exactly it is, whether it's menstrual or whether it's just she can't, like, get blood clots. What exactly? Many believe, though, it had more to do with, with just her body cycles and what she was dealing with. And no doctor could figure out how to stop this. We also know here that she's broke because she spent all that she had to fix this thing for 12 years. We also know that she suffered a great deal. Like when you lose blood, you're tired. You can't get up and do things. But here's the kicker. Here's what we know. We know from Leviticus that any time a woman goes into her period or menstrual cycle, that she would have to go outside. The, she had to stay at home for five to seven days. Nobody could touch her. Nobody could interact with her. And then she had to go outside the camp to be clean before she could come back inside and worship for five to seven days. What do you do when that's your life? What do you do when it's 12 years now? Which, by the way, that's how old Jairus' daughter is. So as long as his daughter's been alive, it's as long as this woman has suffered. Crazy, right? Think of the loneliness. Think, think of the, the hurt. Think of, because she was not supposed to touch anyone. Because anyone she touched became unclean, and then they had to go wash. So that means she couldn't have any touch. She couldn't have any interaction with any other human. She had to live behind a glass wall wherever she went. This is her life. You know, there's a lot of, whenever we're talking to a person, it's hard to sometimes pick up on how big the story is of, that, of the person we're talking to. You know what I mean when I'm saying that? Like, you're talking to a human, another human, and their name is Jane or Bob, and you just want to be like, well, there's their name. I'm sizing them up, and let's just move on. But what do you do when their whole story is something as crippling as this? Like, we just kind of want to live by names and kind of move on, maybe forget the name, go to the next face, but there's a story behind all these names and all these faces. And this passage is trying to bring this to light for us. Because all she had, guys, was a if only. That's all she had left. She didn't have any money. She didn't have any friends. She didn't have any space to belong. All she had left was a if only. And the shame that she had to live with. And this is what's so interesting. Because Jesus, Jesus notices something. Luke chapter 8. It says that she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. 
So she's in a crowd, and she just comes up behind him and touches the edge of his cloak. And all of a sudden, like, she knows her body. So something's happened. And the story could end there. And it'd be an amazing story. Like, it'd be an amazing story. But the story don't end there, does it? Because next we see here, who touched me? Who touched me? Like, hundreds of people around you going crazy Bieber on you, right? And Jesus says, who touched me? And it's the appropriate response that Peter then gives. Um, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people were crowding and pressing against you. Like, what? Like this, I'm sorry. This is strange. Like, lots of people have touched you, okay? Um, we just got to kind of get you through the VIP access treatment here and get you on. And Jesus, you just imagine like, and he stops. Who touched me? And they don't get it because he responds and says, but Jesus said, someone touched me. And here's what's so important to see. This woman is desperate enough. This woman is desperate enough to break the cultural rules and barriers. God, what courage this woman has. Come on now. She's like, I'm not settling for what's been given to me in life. Courageous. I'm willing to go into this crowd. I got to go get mine because all I got left is, in a, is a if only. That's it. And like something happens when she touches him. It says she grabbed the edge of his cloak, which the edge of his cloak would have been these tassels. Um, actually, it's a fun word. Let's try it. The word is tzitzik. Let's try it together. Tzitzik. It's kind of fun, right? Man, English is boring, all right? Tzitzik. What do you got on? Tzitzik. What do you got on? A jacket. Like, you know, like, give me a break. Who wins? Tzitzik always wins, right? Tzitziks were these tassels that... Um, Every person was supposed to wear, every male was supposed to wear, but especially a rabbi. And it would be like a square, that's the way it's explained, almost like a poncho. You put it over, and at the bottom of it would be these tassels. Now, depending on how ornate, uh, what kind of dye you used could really exemplify, like, how important you were. So there's this part later on in Matthew where Jesus criticizes how big the Pharisees, like, tzitziks are. And you're like... That's weird, you know? He's like, you have these big tzitziks and you're showing off and you're like, okay, okay. Well, anyway, so like he has these tassels. Now here's what these tassels represented. Exodus 19.6 says that you are a treasured people in my possession. What the tzitziks were to remind people of is that they were gods and therefore you were to live and follow after God. Now think about this. This woman, with all of her situation, her bleeding, and her life, at some point in time is starting to believe what? I ain't God's. Like, if you got this much going on in your life, and God's not answering your prayers at some point in time, you have to start believing that maybe, not, like, maybe God's not with you. And the audacity and the courage and the faith she has to go, no, I'm going to grab that to Zeke Zeke because I am still God's treasured possession. It's beautiful. 
All the things we don't see, but are represented because she's reaching after Jesus. So Jesus recognizes something has happened here. And then it says in Matthew 9.22, Jesus turned and saw her, and I love this line. He looks at her and he says, take heart, daughter. God, does she need to hear that? Take heart. And what it means in the Greek is like, you have courage. And you don't lose that courage. Like, haven't you just wanted that sometimes in life? Like, you don't really want answers as much as you want someone to look at you and go, hey, you got this. Have courage. And when the God of the universe looks at you and says, hey, you got this. I'm with you. Take courage. It's just a really empowering line. So he says to her, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that moment. And then Jesus goes on to raise the 12-year-old girl from the dead. So many beautiful layers woven together in this passage. Integral details of how Jesus was going about his day and just then. Like he kept having these just then moments, these interruptions, these allowances for people and not just things. These allowances for moments that wasn't about him, but another person who's like, I got to get something from you. I'm just wondering, Jesus, can you make room for me? Can you make space for me? Because I got a story behind my life here. I got things I'm coming out of. I got things that follow me wherever I go. 12 years now. And I don't want to take up too much time, but I'm just wondering, can we have a little bit of time? Can I just like grab your, like your tassel? And then would you mind just even looking at me and giving me something back? It's a longing I think so many of us have. And it's a beautiful thing that Jesus gives her. Because, you know, what is it that makes Jesus so attractive? What is it so attractive about him? Like, you think about this, right? Like, we're talking about a human that lived 2,000 years ago. And we're still amazed by this person's ethics, his way of interacting with humanity. And many have tried it out. They truly have. But even the most moral exemplar person, like you're having a hard time even scratching the surface of what you see in this person in Scripture. And that's why I think you're only kind of left with either it's made up or it's so real, my life has got to be changed by it. Because it is unnerving. Listen, if it's healings, go to a Benny Hinn crusade. I don't care. Go jump on TBN. If you're looking to be delivered or healed for something, fine, go find that. That's important. Don't get me wrong, but also don't get me started with that. Because we need more than just like a healing in the moment. We need to know that somebody is looking at us, because I think what makes Jesus so unnerving is that he sees people. He doesn't miss people. He sees who they are and where they are. Like the story of Matthew 9, here's how it begins. Think about it. We have a paralyzed man, and Jesus sees him and heals him. Right then, he's interrupted. 
because we see that he sees a tax collector, which by the way, tax collectors are like traitors to the Jewish people because they're like in the back pocket of Rome taking money from the Jewish people to give to Rome. But Jesus sees a tax collector and is like, I have a good idea. This guy should like ride in my posse. So he invites, he invites Levi, Matthew, by the way, to come follow him, which then leads to Jesus being ridiculed because he's riding along with people like this guy, which then leads John's disciples and Pharisees coming against Jesus. And then we see that Jesus, is in, he's going to synagogue, synagogue rulers, uh, Jairus' daughter dies. He goes to do that. Then there's a woman here, 12 years suffering. He goes to do that. And then we find that it ends with two men who are blind. Oh, and by the way, to boot, someone who's demonically possessed. That was Jesus' Monday. And he doesn't miss a person. I don't think it's his miracles that are so impressive, y'all. I think it's his humanity. I think he's just so stinking human. He's just so willing to see people around him and not miss them that then these moments can happen. And I think this, this last little part of the passage gives us a hint of this. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says when he saw, put the word up on the screen for you here, he saw, the word is hara'o. Everybody say hara'o. Hara'o. All right, here's what hara'o means, to stare at and behold. How uncomfortable is it if I just stared at you right now? Uncomfortable. And what would you do if I started just beholding you? Like, all you could do is laugh over it. We have no clue what to do when the person's actually looking at us. You know, they say for the brain, the brain is like Teflon with good things. Like, the brain is Velcro with bad things. So negativity sticks instantly to the brain. You just need a second for negative things. But supposedly, and they've, they've even kind of studied this somewhere on art, you have to look at something, behold something that is beautiful for 15 seconds for it to stick with you. Could you imagine Jesus just looking at people, like beholding them, seeing their face? You know, when you behold a person, you start seeing the details of their face. You remember the color of their hair. You remember if they smile or not. You see lines maybe around their eyes. And all of a sudden, you start looking and you start seeing stories, don't you? Because you realize this isn't just like a prop in front of me that I need to get, get around. This actually is a person, a human. This is such a big idea for Jesus. 24 times in the Gospels. I'll put it on the screen for you because I actually researched it. 24 times in the Gospels, it says that Jesus saw, he had feelings, and then he acted. It's the Jesus-like equation. He sees, he has feelings, and then he acts. This is like, this is the, the Jesus code. This is it. You know, all the other books that are out there writing, if they want it, this is the code. It's pretty boring. That's why you don't want to write about it. 
Yet it's pretty amazing because it's so simple. He sees a person, has feelings about that person's life, and then lets those feelings move him into action. Come on now. And this is the Jesus equation. And this is what the Gospels are trying to give us. Jesus was so present and so in the moment, he didn't miss people. And by the way, this isn't new to God. I'll show you. In Genesis 3, we have a story of a couple of people kind of like messing it up. Like they're not getting it right, right? Kind of fell off the wagon. Maybe they jumped on the wrong wagon. However you want to talk about it metaphorically, it didn't go right. Adam and Eve. And so because things don't go right, they try to take things in their own hands. And then they like, oh, I'm naked, you're naked, okay. So they try to clothe themselves. And then it says that God comes down in the day to come walk with them. Because this is what God did. He walked with people. And they had to go hide. And I love the question that, that God asked. He says to them, it says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The three most haunting words for the human. Where are you? And it's not because his GPS was broken, right? It's not like he lost his um, 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 omnipresence for about 10 seconds. And then we find the response from Adam, it's pretty simple. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this has been the tension of humans ever since. We tend to want to hide and show up. We don't know what to do with the audacity of that woman to go, just go, I'm going to show up. I'm going to go be present because I believe I can get something for him. And he's so present, he's going to get something to her. Like God sees. We even find there's this, this woman who's a slave to Abraham and Sarah. Her name's Hagar. Hagar has Abraham's child, Ishmael. Sarah's so upset over it it says in the text that Sarah treated her harshly, which means she was being physically abused. So then Hagar runs away from Sarah out in the desert. An angel comes and meets her, and the angel's like, I'm with you. I'm with you. You can go back. I'm with you. And then I love it here. It says in Genesis 16, 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. The word in Hebrew is El-Roi, the God who sees. And then to boot, Exodus 2.25. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them and their slavery. You see, this has always been God's thing, y'all. He sees, he has feelings, he acts. This is the story of God. And this is also the need of humanity. And so then you think about what Jesus is saying, because we look at verse 37 back in Matthew 9 now, he goes, thinking of all this, Jesus saw the crowd, had feelings, compassion on them. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Think about it. 
He's not telling them to go get people like hell insurance. Not doing that. He's like, hey, did y'all just see the Monday I had? Did you just see how many times I got interrupted? So here's how this works. Your life is meant to be interrupted by people because people have needs and they have stories. The question is, are you gonna see those people and see those needs so you can enter into those stories? And maybe sometimes you find people that had 12 years suffering, they don't suffer anymore. And you're like, that's it? Yep, that's it. That's the call? Yes, that's the call. That's what the world is asking for? Absolutely, because the world has always asked this, do you see me? which is why we seek to see one another in this room. If I rush to say something to you without seeing you and having feelings about your life, I simply am gonna write you off and judge you. And I will stay a one, at best, two-dimensional person who, by the way, can't fulfill what Jesus is asking. So the question is, what do we do with this? And where do we go with this from here? I think two things. We look at this and we have to consider what does it mean for our lives? How do we do this? Like we go like, I want to do that, like what Jesus did. Well, here's the first thing. I think we have to be willing to be seen. Gosh, what a scary sentence. We have to be willing to be seen. There's a quote in your bulletins. I'll read it by Father Richard Rohr. It says, intimacy could be described as our capacity for closeness and tenderness toward things. It is often revealed in moments of risky self-disclosure. Intimacy itself lets itself out and lets others in. Fullness in a person cannot permit love because there are no openings, no handles, no give and take, and no deep hunger. It is like trying to attach two inflated balloons to another. Human vulnerability gives the soul an immense head start on its travels. Maybe the only start for any true spiritual journey. Thus, listen, thus the risen Christ starts off by revealing the human wounds of God. God's total solidarity with human suffering. He starts with self-disclosure from the divine side, which ideally leads to self-disclosure from our side. When I am not willing to be seen and show up and be present and be vulnerable and let my story be known, I just stay an inflated balloon that can't be attached to. If all I'm getting from another person is how they're like winning the day and high-fiving life and killing it, there's no relationship. Now, I don't need them to turn into like a puddle in front of me necessarily, but I know this because you know this, nobody's high-fiving life and winning the day in this room because you're a human, and so am I. But I know what I want to do. I want to project. Here's why I want to project, because I'm afraid if I let you see my weaknesses, all you're going to give me back are your strengths, and then I'm going to live in this constant perpetual shame with you, and therefore I'll regret and rue the day I ever tried to show up. By the way, most churches... Not an insult, but it is a true critique. Which is why a lot of us go, you know what, I think I'm good. I'll just go find community somewhere else. 
this club, that tribe, I don't know. And yet, we find that until we learn to give access to our lives, starting in small ways, we'll never be able to experience anything more. We're just these balloons floating around, and all we can do is observe it, but never attach to it. And I get it. I get how scary it is, and I get how harmed you've been. I'm there with you. Even yesterday, I'm, I'm, I'm having to make decisions because there are still people that can come back into my life that sometimes are like triggering to me. I'm like, ah, that wasn't a good thing. I goes just like through random text messages or something like that. Be like, nope, boundaries. And yet, if I let that dictate my present, I can't be present with you and be in your story, and then we're just left with really nothing changing. So I think first, we have to be willing to be seen. And I think the second thing is this, and this is a hard one. We have to know experientially that God sees us. And gosh, this is a hard one. Like this is, this is where you're like, I was good until now. Because Robin, I have 12 years to prove how I am not seen by God. And so I can't, I can't do that one. And I want you to know something. Until that second one becomes your pearl of great price, until that second one becomes the thing you're willing to sell the farm for because you got to go get that thing, you will always like what you see in here. But you'll never really try, find true transformation that others are getting in here. I can't transform you. And neither can the person sitting to your left or right. But I know somebody. And they're really good at it. And they did it a long time ago, and they've been doing it in space and time since the foundations of the world were laid, and they keep doing it. And like we call it the Trinity, but we also know something. Jesus is the face of the Trinity, which means if Jesus is the face of the Trinity, then this universe, this world, quite possibly could be more benevolent than what I realize. So we're going to give you all a chance this morning to come experience that through the table, the other anchor of what we do here at church. And that is to say, if you just want an experience to know that God sees you, I'm just saying, like, what if you dared to, like, go after that? And, and what if you were willing to talk about that with other people and go, so this whole thing, I relate more to the 12 years of how it hasn't happened, and I'm really scared to even try to think of, to go after this. But here's the thing, my life, like, it hasn't gotten any better, and I'm broke, and I'm lonely, and I need something more. And if that's you, then here's what I would say. Go after it. And what if we as a church intentionally decided that we're going to be a people who know the stories of others in this room because those people are sharing those stories, and we're a people who decide to be present. We choose presence over performing. I tell that to our worship team time and time again. So what if we chose presence over performance? and became those kind of people for one another, and even those who come into this room. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the pattern you gave us. We thank you for the fact that um, 
for there's plenty of us in this room that have experientially like had this thing with you that goes, you see me. But there's also a lot of people in this room that are going, if I'm really honest, I don't think I've been seen by God in a long time. And I pray that for those people this morning, right now, you would start cracking that shell. And they would have the audacity to be like the woman in this passage that says, all I'm left with is an if only. And they would go after that, that if only. And you would meet them. Here at this table, here in this church with these people, and that we would find that as we are working towards us together as a people, we are becoming a people who are learning to choose presence. In your name we pray, amen.